Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Richard Harris. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Uh, and uh, I will uh, make some provocative comments and field your questions. So um, as, uh, as Jennifer mentioned, I uh, had been doing biomedical research on and off over the years and was asked in 2014 to go back and do it again. Uh, and, and that's where this story begins. And by the way, uh, science friction was the working title of my book uh, because I wanted to convey the message that the, the, the problems that I'm about to talk to you about have not stopped biomedical research by any means, but they're providing some friction. They're slowing it down, uh, and some of that friction is unnecessary. And if we can find the right lubrication, if you will, uh, to fix some of these problems, we can speed up biomedical research. So that's, that's, that's my bottom line message. And, and the book focuses on those sorts of things. But when I was asked to come to, uh, back to the beat of biomedical research, I did what any good journalist does, and I said, the first thing I'm going to do is follow the money. And I looked at this graph, or one like it, and noticed in 1998 to 2003, funding for the NIH doubled. Uh, quite impressive uh, in, a, in a short period of time. Uh, labs around the country were celebrating. Uh, the amount of laboratory space in universities increased by 50% as a result of this bump in funding, and of course, all sorts of new scientists came in, uh, and, and you know these were the glory days. But then, as you can see, uh, in uh, in 2003, Congress said, "said We've solved that problem. We're going to spend our money on other purposes," and the funding gradually uh, declined. And if it's, it may look like a sort of a gentle slope, but it's actually over that following decade, it decreased by about 20 percent. And you've, so you had this building boom, you had all of these people coming into science, and in sort of spending power, uh, the funding was reduced. So I thought, this can't be a good thing. There's got to be some negative consequences of having this kind of uh, funding uh, in biomedical research. The next thing I found and spent some time thinking about was this, this idea of problems of reproducing science in the, in the scientific literature. And this paper in particular caught my attention. This had actually been published in uh, uh, 2012, but I, it was new to me when I got back on the beat. And this was published, uh, the first author is Glenn Begley, who at the time was in charge of cancer research at Amgen, a, a large uh, uh, biopharmaceutical company up, up the coast from here. Uh, and he had uh, spent his career uh, basically in the drug company reading the scientific literature, finding really interesting ideas that have been published in, in, in journals and saying, gosh, I wonder if we can make a drug out of that. And, and most of the time when they brought them into his own labs, they found they couldn't repeat the results from these experiments. So after he'd been there for a decade, he thought, you know, I want to take one last look at some of these papers that really excited me and disappointed me. And, uh, and so what he did was he picked 53 studies uh, that he thought, you know, these could be winners if these ended up being correct results. We might be able to build drugs out of these ideas. He tried to reproduce them. He had a whole lot of trouble reproducing them. He even took them back to the original scientists often and said, I'm having trouble reproducing these. Can you please, uh, you know, show me? Can you do it? And most of the time, the original scientists couldn't even reproduce them. And in the end of these 53 uh, papers, he was only able to reproduce six, which is like 11% success rate. That was not a very happy result. Uh, and at the same time, another group from, from the Bayer Drug Company in Germany did a similar exper experiment, and they came to the conclusion that they could only reproduce about 25% of the experiments that they were interested in. 
I will say one thing about this paper. It itself is not reproducible, because he, he did, he, uh, as a condition of doing these uh, experiments, he promised the scientists whose, whose experiments he wanted to repeat that he wouldn't reveal who they were. And, that, and, they, and after he said he couldn't get them to uh, replicate, nobody stood up and said, that was my experiment you couldn't replicate. <laughs> so, so, so layer upon layer of reproducibility. At any rate, that led me to realize, between these two things, I've got, I've got a book. My, as I said, I wanted to call it Science Friction. My publisher thought that this would scare people to buying it. Uh, and so he has this rather, they ended up with this rather more uh, uh, dramatic uh, cover. And, uh, and there it is. So at any rate, when I, when I started doing this, uh, my first thought was, are people going to want to talk to me? I mean, this is sort of like, are people going to think we have to circle the wagons? This is our dirty laundry and so on. And much to my surprise, I discovered scientists are passionate about this issue. And they were happy to talk to me about it. And they were happy to be pretty blunt about it. And this, is, this was, uh, was one of the remarkable interviews I had. This is Janet Woodcock, who's in charge of drug approval at FDA, uh, you know, top of the heap at FDA. And this is something that had been frustrating her for a very long time. She said, drug companies have a better understanding. They do this all the time. They understand how to do these experiments in a really re reproducible manner. But when we get applications that are basically based on university research, very often it just doesn't work. Most of the time, in her experience, it doesn't work. And she, and she told me, it's like 9 out of 10 airplanes we designed fell out of the sky, or 9 out of 10 bridges we built failed to stand up. And then she says, we need rigorous science we can rely on. Uh, another distinctive voice in this is Francis Collins, who's the head of the NIH, somebody who could have chosen to say, nothing to see here, folks, move along. I'm sweeping this under the rug. But he actually... Much to his credit, and I think it has helped this issue a lot, that he stood up and embraced this and said, yes, this is a really serious issue. We as a community need to deal with it. And we're not going to pretend it's not happening. We're going to be open about it. We're going to talk about what the problems are. And that will help us get to solutions. And this is a paper he co-wrote uh, with his chief deputy, Larry Tabak, was published in one of the Nature journals. Uh, and he explains, of course, as, as people who know about science know, in the long run, science is self-correcting. He says, but in the shorter term, the checks and balances that once ensured scientific fidelity have been hobbled. This is the head of the NIH. He's, he's doling out $30 billion a year in research funding. And he's saying, you know, these are strong words. And, and much to his credit, you know, he, he acknowledges this is an issue. And he's been, he's been on the front lines trying to fix it. So scientists. Overall, I also think there's a crisis here. Uh, that the dark red is the, the question, of course, that was posed by the journal Nature in 2016. Is there a reproducibility crisis? 52% said yes, there's a significant crisis. These are scientists from all fields of science. Another 38% said yes, there's a slight crisis. I don't know what a slight crisis is, but, uh, <laughs> but it must have meant something to them. And 10% said, uh, I'm washing my hair. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't care, whatever. But, uh, but the point is, the overwhelming majority of, of scientists say there is a reproducibility crisis. I actually don't use that term, or I only use it in quotes in my book, because I actually don't think it's a crisis. I think these issues have been bubbling along for a really long time. They are part and parcel of science. I think what there is is there's a recognition right now. And, and, and scientists are recognizing. These are some issues that we need to focus on. We need to find a way to improve these things that we've just lived with all of these years. So I actually think this is a hopeful moment right now in this whole realm, because it's, the recognition is these are problems. We, can, we need to fix them. And in fact, my book talks about 
some of the ways that they are readily addressed. Not every problem, but, but there are some problems that can really be taken head on and dealt with in a very direct way. And, and there are improvements that are not hard to achieve. So why do we care about this? This is a curve, I love this curve, a guy by, named Jack Scannell. And this curve shows uh, how much money it takes to develop a new drug. And as you can see, over the years, it's, it's, it's taken uh, more and more money and taken longer and longer to get fewer and fewer drugs approved uh, through, uh, through the system. He calls this Eroom's Law, uh, which is Moore's Law spelled backwards. Because unlike Moore's Law, where micro, you know, microprocessors get cheaper and cheaper and faster and faster, drug development gets more and more expensive and is, is slower and slower. And it's, it's not a pretty picture. And, and clearly, this is not all driven by reproducibility issues. But reproducibility issues, in the first place, they contribute some to this curve. And the other thing that con should concern us is that if, if the underlying research, this biomedical research, what I call preclinical, or what the field calls preclinical research, were done with, uh, with, with more surety and, and with better results, uh, you'd have fewer false starts, and you could, you could actually probably change the curve here and, and say more of those things are actually panning out. And Glenn Begley, 100 years ago now, if he were still alive, could go back to his laboratory and get much better results and, 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 and have drug development uh, accelerated as a result. So, so this, is, this is why we care. I mean, it's not, it's not a very compassionate looking graph, but I couldn't, but Eurum's Law, who, who couldn't like Eurum's Law? So, and this also touches us as news consumers as well. And this paper drives home the point. Estelle Dumas-Malais is at the University of Bordeaux. She published this paper last year with some colleagues. And, and what they did was they went out and they looked at uh, 100 English language newspapers published around the world. And they looked at science, paper, science particularly medical uh, papers uh, that, were, uh, that became the subject of newspaper headlines. And they said, gee, I wonder if these headlines turned out to be true. And there's papers like, here's a new pesticide that's now a new association between a particular pesticide and Parkinson's disease. Or here's a new mechanism that explains ADHD and so on. And I've written all those stories. All my colleagues have written all those stories. And the question is, do we ever go back later and say, I wonder if that was actually true? And what, that, <laughs> and what these guys did was say, well, let's find out. So they looked at a huge number of, of studies, and then they said, let's wait till there's another sort of body of evidence that will tell us whether those initial findings were true or not. And they tracked down 156 primary studies uh, that had been published in these newspapers and found only about half of them uh, actually turned out to be true when there was further re research done. And the ones we care about most, those exciting first, hey, guess what, big news, only about a third of those turned out to be true. So this gives me pause every time I do a story out of a journal saying, Maybe at the end of the story, I should say, historically, about maybe half these studies like this actually turn out to be true. So are you feeling lucky today? <laughs> so, but but uh, I mean, that's important for me as a reporter when I'm thinking about picking stories. It's also important for you as news consumers when you're reading these things to say, you know, you know when I check back on this, will, will it be right or not? I don't know. I, I, I wanted to talk about the fact that um, a lot of these issues are just the result of the fact that science is hard. Scientists are working on the frontiers of knowledge, right? And if they were getting everything right, I would say, you're not working hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. You should be failing some of the time uh, because you're on the frontier. You don't know, you don't know what's out there. Uh, and this is a paper uh, that I think illustrates that point really nicely, uh, which was a group uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and elsewhere. And they were trying to develop 
a way to just take a blood sample and see can we predict whether somebody or can we diagnose cancer just from a blood sample by looking at the proteins in the blood sample. So they took some blood samples from women who had, or people who had cancer in the hospital and, and they said, okay, these are, you know, we'll, we'll isolate a bunch of proteins from here. And then they said for a control group, we'll take blood samples from a, from a health clinic up the street where we know where we, it's unlikely that people have cancer. They're, we consider, they're presumably healthy people. And we'll compare. And sure enough, what they found when they did this comparison was, yes, there's a difference between the blood, the proteins in the blood in these two populations. And at first they got very excited and then they realized, uh, this isn't really panning out. This isn't working. Why is this not working? And they realized there was something about the way the blood was collected it had nothing to do with the proteins in the blood. It just had to do with the fact that one was taken in the hospital and one was taken in the clinic. And it turns out the only difference was the test tubes. And just the virtue of the fact that they had taken blood in different kinds of test tubes explained their results entirely. Now, who could have anticipated that, that problem, right? Nobody can. This is one reason you want scientists to be replicating their results, right? Because you, you find something exciting. You want to say, oh, well, if somebody else does it, will they get the same result? But this took them a, a, quite a while of sleuthing to actually get to the bottom of it. And as I say, it really illustrates the fact that, that science is hard and, and we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be mad at these people. We should be delighted that they spent the time to figure out why their exciting results turned out not to be what they thought they were. And, 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 and a lot of science, a lot of the errors, I think, that creep into science are things like this that are unanticipated. They're the unknown unknowns. They're these sorts of things that... Uh, that, that that you just can't anticipate in the beginning, and you just have to accept you know, and understand that scientific results you know, may, not, may not pan out over time. Uh, but there are other cases where, where scientists have, didn't pay enough attention to some of their, their assumptions. And this is a study of a technology called fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. You've seen pictures of people's brains glowing different colors. This section lights up, that, that section lights up uh, when they are... Uh, put under one of these scanners and so on. And it's a very powerful tool uh, used to understand how the brain works. But these guys asked a question, uh, how good are the statistical methods and the sort of these, this in the, it, that are applied all the time, day in and day out, they're sort of baked into these processors. Has anyone really checked to see how good these statistical processes are? And what they found was that actually, uh, if you're not careful, you're going, to get, you're going to get pretty crazy results out of this because no one had really truth-checked those statistics to realize that you have to set up the parameters in just the right way or you're not going to get the right results. And most people didn't even know that. I mean, they didn't know it going into it. And, but they, what they found was a huge number of these experiments uh, were actually kicking, false, uh, kicking out uh, false positives. They were, they were not tr true results just because the statistical package had not been tuned up properly. And at first they said, you know, they said, they estimated there were 40,000 papers in the literature that we probably have to throw out because, because they use these methods and, and, and by now the data are thrown out so we can't even reanalyze them. And then somebody pointed out that they made a mistake there and so they actually corrected this paper and, they, and now they say, uh, they question the validity of a number of, F, of fMRI studies, not no longer that they say 40,000, but they think it's at least 4,000. But there's a large body of literature that is not reliable now because, the, because they discovered this problem. Good news is, of course, going forward, scientists uh, 
are now aware of this problem in analyzing these results. And if they're careful, they can avoid these pitfalls. So this did a big service. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's a reminder that things aren't uh, hunky-dory all the time. And my focus is biomedical research, but I'll mention that this is also a huge problem in psychological science, particularly in experiments of social science, where you get, you know, 20 undergraduates in a room, uh, you do an experiment on them, and then you extrapolate to all of humanity. Uh, and and, uh, and <laughs> this paper looked at a, 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 about 100 of those papers that had gotten a lot of traction over the years, and to say, and scientists were saying, well, what if we reproduce them? What will we get? And the answer is, a lot of those studies are not reproducible at all. And, uh, and when they're redone, even if you tell the, you know, you talk to the scientists, we're gonna redo it this way, does that work for you? And they say, yeah, yeah, that, that should, we should get, you should get the same results. Most of the time, in fact, they did not get the same results. So, so this was sort of the wake up call in the world of social psychology, uh, which is also dealing with these problems. Just wanted to say, this is by no means all about biomedical research. And I will say, actually, the National Academy of Sciences right now is uh, undergoing a series of of hearings and so on, and they're actually preparing a report to look at what these issues are in other areas of science where it's not as well defined as it is in, in biomedical science and, and psychological science. And so look for that report on your doorstep a year or two from now, I don't know. But their they're, 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 hearings are ongoing on, on that topic. Uh, so what's going on? So a couple things I'm gonna focus on, things that are easily fixable, bad ingredients, design that's susceptible to bias, Statistical errors, and this is not easily fixable, but a very big part of this problem is the bad incentives that are baked into the way the biomedical system is set up in this country right now. So in terms of bad ingredients, I want to start with the story of Henrietta Lacks. In 1951, she went into the Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, with what turned out to be cervical cancer, and uh, they, they harvested some cells from her cervix and, and were able to grow them and immortalize them, and it became the first uh, immortal cell line of, from, from human tissue, and it is still used today in laboratories as a way of, oh, now we can study cancer in a petri dish as opposed to in human beings. And there's, you know, the, the story, there's a, a, a big dramatic backstory about this that uh, uh, Rebecca Sklut told very well in her book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks about some of the ethical lapses and so on that, that involve all of this. But, but the other half of the story is that these cells are, turned out to be essentially kudzu of, in the world of, 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 of cell cultures, they spread like crazy. If you have these cells in your lab and you have uh, other cells and you make even the smallest mistake, before you know it, the, uh, HeLa cells, which is what they're called, will just take over. They will overwhelm all of your cells. And you may think you're studying liver cells over here, but actually you probably have HeLa in every single one of your Petri dishes in, in your laboratory. And, and this has been a problem since the very early days of this research. Uh, it was very widely ignored uh, in the early days, despite the, the efforts of one very cantankerous and dyspeptic scientist who, for some reason, couldn't convince his colleagues uh, that, uh, that they should pay more attention to this issue. Uh, but uh, he, he was right, but he, he went about it all the wrong ways. Uh, his name was Walter Nelson Reese. Uh, and, uh, but basically, the, these are huge contaminant problems throughout biomedical bio literature today. In fact, for very recently, these, these two scientists uh, writing in PLOS One decided to go and see just how common these have become because now they're called all sorts of different things. They're whole new cell lines, like there's something called Chang liver uh, that is actually a HeLa cell. It has nothing to do with liver or Chang. It's, it's, cells, it's these cervical cancer cells from, from this woman. There's, uh, there's 
one scientist named a cell line after his wife because he thought that, uh, and it turns out that those were HeLa cells and not what, what the scientists had. Uh, scientists in, uh, have apparently been using these cells as what is called nursing, nurse cells to grow human embryos for, cell, for, for human embryo, uh, you know, for, to test tube baby, uh, uh, ex not experiments, they're actually used for clinical purposes to grow these embryos and to transplant them into women. And there's a strong suspicion that the cells that they're growing on are actually HeLa cells, which is a little bit spooky. Uh, and, but so, so they, they've gone, they're, they're, they're really everywhere. In fact, these guys found, you know, they went back in the literature, how many of these uh, articles are saying it's one kind of cell when they're actually HeLa cells. And they found 32,755 articles where the cells were misidentified. And, and, and then there were, and those were cited in a half a million other papers. So you can imagine, um, Talk about, this is now the literature is contaminated. It's not just the cells in the laboratory, but the literature is now contaminated with this, with these cell lines. It's a huge problem, and it's continuing unabated. There's a group called the International Cell Line Authentication Committee that is looking at these issues and is trying to cr create a list of this. And HeLa turns out to be just one contaminant. They found 400, more than 400 misidentified cell lines that are now known. Uh, a lot of them are HeLa, but there are tons of other ones. They're, they don't even get the species right on some of these. And so you, so you think you're using a cell line that's a, uh, a breast cancer cell. It actually turns out to be a melanoma cell. And, uh, and those, those continue, even though they're in this database, they continue to be published on today. So scientists haven't got the message. Publishers haven't got the message. Uh, and a, a lot of this is, you know, why are you, why are you publishing this? Why, do, uh, why does a journal allow this to happen? And uh, it's just, it's an information problem, among other things. But this is... You know, this is an e the nice thing is this is a, an easily solvable problem because there are inexpensive tests that you can use to identify your cells, and 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 you can say, you know, if you think you're studying liver cancer, you can find out whether that cell line is actually a liver cancer cell. So in terms of uh, th this is a story now about bad methods was the next thing I was talking about bad experimental design. This is a story of Tom Murphy, whom I actually did a story about on NPR when I first moved to this beat and was sort of exploring these issues. Tom had ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, a degenerative disease that gradually you lose your ability to use your muscles and uh, you eventually can't even use your diaphragm and you stop breathing and you die. And, uh, and um, no, there's no successful drug for treating that. And if you're a, a man, or usually a man, in, in the circumstances you end up basically with one chance to get into a clinical trial because your, your, your body basically is, is sort of wasting away fast enough that by the time you're done with one clinical trial, you're in too bad shape to do another one. So he chose to do a clinical trial of a drug called DEX. And, and he, he was on the trial. They had 1,000 people. They, they put a lot of money into it. They were working hard on it. And it turns out that DEX did not work. And uh, he, he felt it helped him for a little while, but in the end, uh, it, it, was, it was not a success for him or anybody else, and the, they sort of dropped uh, using the, the drug. And I, I tell the story because um, a, a lot of these drugs, this is, you know, he could have chosen a bunch of other drugs, and the story would have been the same. And I wanted to spend just a minute on this graph uh, because the, the, the light blue bars talk about what these, how these drugs worked in, um, in mice before they tried them in people. And as you can see, all the blue bars show that the 
the, the change in the survival in the mice was all positive. All of them looked like they were increasing the survival in these mice uh, pretty well. And, uh, and so it was giving people hope to go and, and spend sometimes tens of millions of dollars to do these experiments in human beings as well. Um, and this was, and so a group called the ALS Therapy Development Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts decided, started noticing that those mouse experiments were not designed very well. Some of them were done with just a half a dozen mice. They weren't necessarily even sort of splitting up the males and the females or getting the, uh, you know, making sure that the litter mates were split up and that they were, you know, they were just very poorly designed. Uh, and, and so they said, we're going to redo these, these experiments. It's expensive to do. It's like $100,000 per experiment. But they decided, we really want to know uh, whether these drugs work if, if, these drugs, if, they, if they're done carefully and correctly in mice. And the black bars show what they found when they actually did these, these studies with great care in mice. And the answer is, none of them worked in mice either. And there was really not a lot of reason to expect that they worked in, in humans. The one on the top worked a tiny bit, and that is actually an approved drug for ALS. And it works a tiny bit in human beings as well. So, so th this is, a, this is a, a big issue. This actually drew the attention of some of the officials at the NIH. And they realized, we're spending tens of millions of your money, taxpayer dollars, to do these experiments. We need to spend more time thinking about whether these are worth doing. And the problem was, people didn't spend enough time thinking about the mouse experiments before they were putting money in the human experiments. And this triggered a very positive and, and, and useful exercise within the NIH improve the way that they think about uh, preclinical studies before they go into human beings. And it sort of lit the fire uh, that ultimately ended up you know, with Francis Collins standing up and telling Congress, yeah, this is a big problem and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take it on. So statistical problems are another real uh, concern in, 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 in this area of science. And one of my favorites is called harking, which is hypothesizing after the results are known. And this sounds, sounds very innocent. You do an experiment. You don't get the results you expect. But it's like, oh, but look, this, this you know, left-handed people did remarkably well. Uh, so, uh, so then you publish your results saying, this drug works great in left-handed people. Uh, and uh, the, the problem with that is uh, there, there's, it's, it, it doesn't seem necessarily that obvious. But, but actually, there's a real problem with that. And, and actually, the best way I've seen it explained is actually by this, uh, this uh, comic strip, Baldo. And here's the scientist doing her experiment, going to check her results. And you can see. <laughs> if you decide afterwards where to point the, tar the target, it works a lot better. And, uh, and these are still useful experiments because they can give you leads and new ideas. And it's like they're, they're called exploratory experiments. And, and it's great to explore and to get new ideas. But you shouldn't then say, apply the statistical methods and then make the claims that are involved in saying, this was my hypothesis, and I have now demonstrated it with these results. Unfortunately, it means starting over with a new set of experiments designed specifically to test this idea, not the idea that didn't work. Uh, and uh, it takes time and money, and, and it's frustrating, and so on. But it's also necessary because it's easy to fall into the trap of see, thinking you have a real result when, in fact, you just had a, a fluke and it didn't really mean anything. Um, in terms of I, this, this is my entree into, into the, the cultural world here. Uh, this is a, a, a paper that was published a couple years ago about the use of, 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 of big words, happy words, mostly in, 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 in scientific papers. And these scientists in, in, in the Netherlands decided to see 
look at the trend between 1974 and 2014 and see if scientists were, 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 were more expressive about what their results were. And their, their hypothesis was, as the pressures grow to publish and to get attention and to get exciting results and to prove to your funders you're doing great things, they wondered if the scientists themselves were, were pumping up what they found. And, and so the, the results were that novel, innovative, and unprecedented. And they found they increased in relative frequency up to 15,000% over these decades, which itself is a little bit hyperbolic, right? <laughs> but, uh, but the point is, you know, the pressure is on scientists. And this is an indication that it's not that scientists are, are, have more swagger, but they realize that the rewards that they, uh, that they need to get to keep their laboratories open are, are tougher and tougher to achieve. And they have to stand out in, in this crowd of more and more scientists fighting for a, for a diminishing pool of, of resources. And it's hard. And, and it's not, you know, scientists are human beings. They follow the incentives that, that are put out in front of them. And one incentive is you've got to be doing inventive, novel, and unprecedented and robust work. And, uh, and so they say, OK, I, I am. I can prove it. I put it in my abstract. So at any rate, uh, this was, the, I've, I talked to a lot of people about these, these problems, which are the deep problems in, in biomedical research. One of my best conversations, most interesting, was with Henry Bourne at UC San Francisco. And he says the real problem is balancing ambition and delight. And uh, because if you're a scientist, you have to have enough ambition to keep your laboratory running. Just sort of the, the reality is, uh, with, particularly in these days where the state of California is not supporting University of California very much. And basically, if you're a researcher, you have to get grants if you want to keep your lab going. You can't just rely on, a, on, your, on your university salary. And if you lose your grants, you lose your lab. Your colleagues that you're supporting lose their jobs. It's a terrible circumstance. And so, so ambition is unfortunately baked in and is really necessary in the way the system operates right now. But what scientists, you know, they, they don't really want to spend their time running a small business by and large. They want to be delighted by exploring the, the, the world around them, right? They should, be, they, should be in, in, they should be motivated by the delight of new discoveries. And, and his point is that there's got to be a balance of those. And the balance is off kilter right now because funding is so hard to get, and because the incentives really uh, basically force uh, scientists into, uh, into these positions. One, sci one uh, economist described this to me as sort of the shopping mall model of how universities work. It used to be you were supported by your university, and now the university is more or less the owner of the shopping mall. And so you can set up your shop inside the shopping mall, but if you don't bring in money to keep your shop alive in the form of usually federal grants, uh, uh, then then bye-bye, you're, you're gone, we'll, we'll rent the space to somebody else. And that's not the way we really want science to be supported. We want people to feel they can sit back and, and take a chance and explore ideas and not worry about putting food on the table and, and so on. But that's the reality right now of the way the academic science is, is carried out. So there are solutions. I know it's sort of a... a uh, sort of a depressing uh, landscape to talk about, but there's actually a lot that's going on uh, that's, that's addressing these problems. As I said, uh, you know, it's not a crisis in my view, it's an awakening, and people have taken the, that, that knowledge that they've learned from this awakening, and, and they're putting it to use, and there are changes that are all beneficial. One is validating their ingredients. Another uh, lever you could pull is, is making science more transparent. Better training of scientists, because some of these things like harking are things that scientists just don't, aren't, aren't trained how to, how to think about those things. And also changing the bad incentives. This is the hardest, but also the most fundamental uh, issue that, uh, 
uh, that we need to address in order to, in order to make deep systemic changes uh, and, you know, and to make sure that we as taxpayers are getting uh, the most that we can out of this and to make sure that scientists feel like they can actually do science and not just spend all their time raising money and just worrying about the day-to-day -day realities of life. So in terms of um, uh, the, ingredients, the ingredients, I mentioned that you can actually send your ingredients away and have them validated uh, by a lab and uh, for not very much money. And now the NIH actually requires that. They say, if you're getting a grant from the NIH, we expect you to validate your ingredients. I don't think they have the you know, inspectors come in your lab and make sure that you've actually done it. But it's, it's now understood that that's an expectation in your lab. And so I think, like, I think that in the long run, the problems with the cell lines and so on I was talking about will get resolved if scientists actually follow through and, and send their samples off to get tested and make sure that they're dealing with the, um, the samples they think they are. I put this uh, slide up because this is from the February 2001 Nature when they published the, this first complete draft of the human genome, a, a monumental moment in the history of science. Of course, they didn't publish all three billion letters of the, in, in the journal Nature, but what they said was, let's pick about a dozen interesting things we discovered in the course of doing this, like how many genes there are in the human genome. And, and one of the things they, they, they trumpeted was, we discovered, much to our amazement, that there were some genes that, that have gone straight from bacteria and jumped directly into the human genome. Uh, which is a pretty amazing thing. They didn't like, it wasn't through evolution that they wormed their way up, but they just, they're latecomers. They, they found a way to jump in, which didn't make a lot of sense biologically, which is also interesting because, well, maybe there's some new biology we don't understand. Um, now, one important aspect of the Human Genome Project is that all of that data was put into the public domain immediately, which was a, a huge part of sort of the, their, their philosophy and thinking. And so these guys said, Let's grab that data ourselves and reanalyze it. It's all in the public record. We can go, see, we can go investigate these microbes that jumped right into the human genome. And they investigated, and as they suspected, it was an artifact. It was a mistake. It didn't really happen. And as you can see, this is by June of 2001. They published this paper saying, uh, nice try, Francis Collins and Eric Lander and so on. Uh, you're wrong. Uh, we've, we've actually reanalyzed your data, and th that is not how it happened. You just made a mistake, but uh, we're not that we're boasting or anything, but we're right and you're wrong, whatever. Uh, and, uh, and, and actually, it's an example of science working really well. This, you know, not that science is perfect, we can't expect that, but, but that when a mistake happens, that if, you, if the data are readily available, you can easily uh, identify that, uh, have somebody else take a look at it, get to the bottom of it, and fix it. And I talked to Francis Collins about this afterwards, and, uh, who, who was one of the authors on the, on the Nature paper, and he said, yep, we were wrong. He said, but, you know, fortunately, uh, no harm was done, no humans were hurt in this error, except uh, a few bruised egos, maybe, along the line. But, uh, but you, know, that's, you know, that's an ideal. That's, that, you know, and so scientists are thinking, how can we improve the way that, uh, that uh, we make our data transparent so that people can really, uh, you know, find the errors, which inevitably will occur, and fix them and, and move along and not have people get stuck down a blind alley for a long time, which otherwise can happen. This, I put the slide up of Arturo Casadevall, who's at Johns Hopkins University, because uh, he's been thinking a lot about the education aspect of this. Uh, and he believes that scientists these days who are getting a PhD are not spending enough time thinking about the philosophy part of the, the doctor of philosophy. And so he's thinking about how to 
change uh, medical education in this, particularly in this preclinical research area. And uh, and it has become his passion, and he's very he's very well spoken on this subject. And in fact, what happened in uh, a few years ago, twenty. 14, I think, the national, one of the National Institutes of Health went back and they said, you know, we, we recognize this as an issue also, so let's take the best curriculum from around the country and, uh, and, and, and recirculate it so scientists can see, can find these courses that really do a good job of teaching graduate students uh, in biomedical, preclinical biomedical research, uh, what, how to do the methods, how to think about their statistics and design experiments and so on. So they put out a request for information, send us your best curricula, and they got essentially zero responses from anyone. People were not actually offering these classes. So Arturo says, oh, no, that's, not, that's no good. And then NIH has also said, oh, we don't like that either. So they are funding development of courses uh, to actually to, to train scientists how to do this uh, when they're young scientists. And, and, and so they start off their career thinking, thinking about how to design experiments properly. How many animals do I need? It's like, six. Why do you say six? That's what everyone uses. It's like, well, that's not a really good answer. And, uh, and so making people think through those and, and understand and develop uh, better techniques. People of Arturo's generation, many biologists, uh, went into biology. When they did, it was a, a, a descriptive science. It was not a heavily quantitative science. And one, one guy, uh, uh, Keith Yamamoto, quipped to me, there's, the saying in the lab used to be, if you need to do, use statistics to analyze your results, think of a better experiment. <laughs> the reality is, that's not biology anymore. That was when they were all trained, but it's not anymore. And so, so, uh, so training and, and, and getting these ideas in from the ground up is, is a powerful way to fix some of these issues. And that's starting to happen, and that's a very gratifying thing to see. I will also mention Carolyn Compton, who, uh, whom I met uh, on the course of doing this. She's a, a, a pathologist now at, the, at Arizona State University, but she's wear, worn many hats over the years, including at the National Cancer Institute and so on. And she became passionate about the fact that when specimens are gathered for, uh, it, in surgeries and so on, for if somebody you know, has, a, has a colon removed and somebody takes a tissue sample to study colon cancer, uh, those tissues are not necessarily handled with great thought and care and uniformity. They may sit out for a while, the, 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 and people don't really know very much about it. And she believes that that very irregular handling of tissues really affects everything that happens downstream from that. And, and what's increasingly happening downstream from that is those tissues are ending up in, in biobanks where they are being used uh, in, in the, to, to improve precision medicine. They're being used to study these, these diseases to get much more precise treatments. And she's saying, the differences they may be seeing between these various kinds of cancer might just be the way they're being handled, how long they sat in the, in the mail cart go, going down the hall to the pathology lab. And so she's been pushing very hard in the world of pathology and, and uh, among others to, to say, let's think more carefully about creating some standards and handling these tissues uniformly so that we can have confidence in them when we're done um, getting them per preserved and, and into the scientific pipeline. If we're starting with garbage uh, uh, in, in, in precision medicine, uh, we're not gonna end up with precision coming out the other end. Uh, garbage in, garbage out is, is sort of what, uh, how, how she put it. And so, and, and she's, she's making good headway, or some headway at least, in the world of, of pathology to get pathologists to think about this and to come up with standards and so on. So, and, you know, and another example of someone saying, here's, you know, it's not glamorous 
science. You don't get a big grant for understanding how tissues change when they're, when they're sitting around for a long time. Uh, but these are really critical, also, experiments to do to understand. And she's pushing for people to do them and to understand them and to think about standards and so on. Standards seem like, you know, who wants to, standards seem boring. But you absolutely need them if you want to be able to have full trust in your tissues after the fact. Brian Nosek is another person who's been thinking a lot about these issues. Uh, he's at uh, the Center for Open Science and the University of Virginia. And I want to tell a short story about Brian's, uh, uh, that he told me about when he was up for promotion. His, his, his boss said, uh, send me all your papers. He said, I'm, I'm a social psychologist. We publish all the time. I've got like 100 papers. You don't want to read 100 papers. Boss said, send me, a send me all your papers. So what are you going to do, weigh them? It's like, uh, and, and then he, it got him thinking about the fact that if, when he had got to the University of Virginia, if his uh, chairman had said, when you're up for promotion, we want you to bring the three best pieces of work you did, um, and, and we'll judge you on that, he realized how differently he would have framed his research. He would have thought much more carefully about doing a few things that he wanted to do really well and, 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 and with as much insight as possible. But the incentives are, this is an example of where the incentives are wrong. And, and, he's, and he's pushing to say, let's rethink these incentives. Let's reward scientists, not for publishing a huge amount or even publishing them in the fanciest journals, Let's reward scientists for doing work that really matters. And it's harder to measure, but that's not really what's being rewarded right now, unfortunately. And that's not an easy change to make, because what scientists are really need are, is, is right now is research that grant proposals that will bring in money to them to keep their labs going, right? So, so this requires changes on, on multiple levels of the system. But it is one of the fundamental issues. And Brian has been thinking a lot about how to try to how, to, how to change the incentives so that, so that scientists do maybe less work. We don't, do we really need a million publications every year in the biomedical literature, which is about what we have? Maybe half a million? <laughs> how about a quarter of a million, but really good papers? If we could get to a place where that was the expectation and that was what was rewarded, I think we as a society would be much better off. Uh, it seems like things might, it, the perception might be things are moving more slowly because people aren't publishing as frequently. But if most of it is right most of the time, that's great. I think that the rewards to us as a society would be, would be fabulous if, if we could move it to that place. Hard to do, but, but I'm glad people are thinking about the ways to change the incentives in the system. Barbara Slusher at Johns Hopkins, also at Hopkins, uh, as was Arturo Casadevall, also has an idea for for improving the quality of, of work, biomedical research flowing out of Hopkins labs, which is that if somebody comes up with a great idea, uh, instead of having it go off to Amgen, where Amgen tries it and says, oh, university screwed up again, uh, basically she is running a lab that is, that's, that's running those checks. And she's saying, if you have a great idea, it might be worth a drug or something, bring it to us. We'll analyze it, we'll redo it, we'll find out, we'll really do the, the, the critical research on it. And then if we still think that this is a solid result, and she says about half the time uh, what comes to her uh, does pan out, then we can talk about how to move it forward. But you know, add some more checks in, into the system uh, to, uh, to, to catch these errors early. It's again another, you know, you know, you can't always get it right the first time. Maybe you can't often get it right the first time. But, you can, but if you don't let things linger as errors for a long time, you're better off. And, that's, and so she's trying to intercept the world in that part of the cycle as well. 
Finally, I'll talk about Steve Goodman and John Ioannidis, who are at Stanford. They created this thing called the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford. Meta research is research about research. Uh, Steve Goodman says, it's not like metaphysics. This is real. We're actually, uh, and, and the, their idea is to study and study what's going on as, you know, make this, what I'm talking about is a, as a focus of academic research, to understand the roots of the problems, to think about other solutions, and to move forward. And they've done, uh, they're, they're, they've, they've got a number of projects going. They're thinking a lot about this. And, and I end with these guys because um, they both come from a, a, a very hopeful history here. They were both involved in very similar issues that, were, that was confronting clinical research in the 1990s and so on and, and earlier, where a lot of these sorts of problems were also coming up in, in studies involving human subjects. And a lot of these studies were just not panning out. And they were, and, uh, and, and they were, they were sort of stuck to some extent where, where biomedical research is today with a lot of noise, some good stuff, some bad stuff, a lot of noise, a lot of uncertainty about what to believe and what not to believe. And they were involved in, in and have been for, for all these years, in sort of pointing out the errors and in suggesting improvements and so on. And actually, they argue that biomedical research in the clinic now is by no means perfect, but it's much better than it was. And, and they're now trying to take the experience they learned from pressuring and being sort of annoying and, and, and raising all those problems with clinical research and finding some solutions. They're now turning their attention to doing that. Uh, in this realm as well. And, you know, it's a harder problem because there are, it's not just one field of, 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 uh, of research. There are lots of, of sort of subfields, each with its own culture, probably each with its own solutions. But they are, uh, they're very hopeful about doing that. And the one example I'll give of what happened in clinical research is they discovered that if, that if scientists have to register their, their, their studies in this federal database called clinicaltrials.gov, they're going to do an experiment. They say in advance, what is, what, what is your hypothesis? What are your endpoints? And, and what are your results in the end? And this has helped. It's by no means perfect, but it has helped improve the way biomedical research is done in, on a clinical level. Scientists can't change their minds. They can't do an experiment, say, I'm studying this in right-handed people, and then say, oh, it worked great in left-handed people, or whatever. I had my hands backwards for you. Uh, but uh, it was they basically uh, make people follow some, some sensible guidelines on the, on the correct conduct of research, including reporting your results, even if your results don't come out to be what you expect them to be. That's another, that's a story for another day, but that's another real problem in, in clinical science. So but the point is, you could, you could take this idea and say, if you're going to do an experiment, tell us in advance what your hypothesis is. And, and maybe a journal will even say, if it's an interesting enough hypothesis, we promise to publish your results whether you find what you expect it or you don't, you know? If it's an interesting question, it shouldn't matter what the answer is. If, uh, I mean, it shouldn't, the, either answer should be interesting. And so, so there's ideas about how to do that to, to help get people to be, you know, to report any results, to, to make the literature as complete as possible, and also to be honest about what ideas they were testing to begin with to make sure that they're not, uh, you know, altering the, uh, their plans as they go along. So. So just, those are just a few ideas, but, um, but there's a lot of conversation around these, these issues right now. And, and I, I, I end this with, in a, in a sense of hope that with this recognition, with, with all of this attention that is being paid, that, that people really are you know, taking this seriously and finding ways forward. It won't be fast, but, it, but it's moving in the right direction. So thank you very much for your attention.